0: Just be Hi, everybody. I'm Greg. I'm a compulsive eater. I can't. Happy to be here today. Thanks, John, for asking me. Um, I'm going to do show and tell. I usually forget, but I was speaking at a Thursday morning meeting, so I left it in the car. So, um, start from the back from the cute little take and uh, work towards the middle, and that's, that's it in terms of my pictures, and then if you want to keep going, you can look at some places I've vacationed. <laughs> in program. So that, that's all brand new from program. Um, so let's see. I have no idea what I'm going to say, so I hope to get something out of it, and I'm just going to follow the typical format, which is uh, what it was like, what happened, and what, it like, what it's like now. And uh, tonight I'd like to focus more on between what happened and what it's like now. Because what it was like is, um, it was bad. (laughs) But uh, let me just say, first off, uh, an old sponsor of mine said that whenever you speak, um, qualify just really briefly and give your stats. So um, I first came into the program in the summer of 1988. It was the first Wednesday in July. I was approximately 250 pounds, Um, so that was about 18 and a half years ago now. Uh, I currently weigh, I have no idea what I weigh. (laughs) And that right there is a miracle that I actually don't know what I weigh and that I don't care enough to know what I weigh, but I'm going to guess that I'm about 190 based on the last time time I weighed myself. So um, I've been as low as 165 in this program, and thankfully I've never gone. So I have relapsed in my story, and that I came in in 1988. I left in '94 for approximately a year, and I came back June 2nd, 1995. So I am just almost 11 and a half um, years absent. and I'm really grateful for that. that absent and back from relapse. So. Um, It's very interesting when you look at some of these pictures. When I first got some of the pictures of me from my parents prior to uh, age six, I grew up basically, and, and I've spent all of my adult life thinking that I was fat for my entire life until I found this program. And there was a point prior to coming to program, it was probably in 87 or so, when I basically looked at myself in the mirror, which was a very loathsome, difficult thing to do. I hated looking at myself in the mirror, and I basically, um, I, I just, I hated myself, pretty much, is what it came down to. I had the amazing mental capacity to block anything from my neck down, so I was not really <laughs> conscious, up below my neck. I think that is, that's, that's one of the sadder points of this disease is that the lack of actual physical consciousness, like awareness of my body. Um, so there was this point at which I just noticed, kind of, very momentarily, that I was fat, and I figured, I guess I'm going to be fat the rest of my life. Um, and by then, I, I was definitely up to 250 pounds. Um, I was, my eating is not, I'm not a I haven't historically been a binge eater. I was what I call a graze eater. Um, You might have heard that term before. And basically what that meant is that once I started, I didn't stop. And I probably ate enough throughout the entire graze, uh, as much as probably two or three sittings at a meal. And I also had the habit of having more than one meal at a meal. (laughs) (laughs) I guess you call that servings, but I had no idea what servings were back then. So um, I like to say that prior to coming in program, my life was this is very easy to describe. I basically um, my life was was controlled by fear, and uh, and then my attempts to control everything that I was afraid of, and to control whatever it was. Um, in the beginning, it, it, it's very interesting because before age six, I was a slender kid, as you see my pictures. I was. I was Recovery. I asked my mom, like,
1: was I always,
0: you know, fat? You know, like, what? Because I just, there wasn't any memory. And she was, oh, you were always big boned. I'm like, I'm not big boned. <laughs> I don't know, maybe my bones are shrunking, program, but I doubt it. So um, I took that as gospel, basically. I thought she was right. And to see those pictures, what I realized is that there was a certain what was going on there, but the why is really immaterial. The the point is that at that point, I discovered that I didn't have to feel anything if I ate, period. That's how it works for me. If I eat the wrong kinds of foods, or if I eat my trigger foods, my addiction foods, my alcoholic foods, then there is no such thing as a feeling. And um, in reality, what I've also learned is that there really is no such thing as a clear conscious thought, Okay nor is there such a thing as inspiration or intuition or any kind of spiritual guidance of any form. Nor do I really give a shit what you have to think or say... Actually, I care a lot about what you have to say if I'm binging. Uh, I care a lot about what you think, but I don't give a shit what you say. <laughs> you know, it's this weird. It, and, and the thing is, is I become, I become incredibly fearful. So I spent the first 23 years of my life afraid of everybody. I could not have done something like this. I don't know how many people are here, but there's well over 20, and that would have petrified me. Why? Because I was I was self-conscious. I was afraid of what everybody thought. I was afraid of succeeding. I was afraid of failing. I was afraid of having sex. I was afraid of girls. I was afraid of dancing. I was afraid of not getting A's. I was afraid of getting B's. I was afraid of doing something wrong. I grew up really being told that I could not make a mistake. Um, Not in the good sense, (laughs) like oh, you're so great, you'll never, you can't make a mistake. No, it's like like mistakes were not allowed, and I had that message quite quite strongly when I got in. So fast forward a little bit through time, and I eventually, um, you know, I don't think food was food was prevalent in my family, but it was not necessarily prevalent in my life. It definitely um, it definitely worked, but I wasn't I wasn't conscious of how it shut my feelings off. And as things went on, as I got older, my, my, my eating became clearly robotic to the point at which there, there was no, um, there, there, there wasn't a thought really. It was, it was like, feel something, eat, mm, go to the fridge. Uh, get this, whatever, and even if I was in self-loathing at that moment, or knowing that I shouldn't have that extra scoop of ice cream, or, you know, knowing that I shouldn't eat the whole box of vanilla wafers, or whatever it was, I had no control over it. There was no power. And, you know, for me, the admission of powerlessness in the first step is really important, because once I admit that I'm powerless, and then once I come to believe in a power greater than myself in step two, and then once I turn my to the care, not control, the care of the power greater than myself, then and only then do I actually have power. I get given the power of choice. If I choose the food, I then forfeit that power. I no longer have the power if I start eating my alcoholic foods. I, I give it up. So, um, just to describe some of my behaviors to you, when, um, in college was pretty much A really small lunch. It never worked, and I was so comfortable being in the cafeteria that um, I would go to dinner. Actually, at the time I was Catholic, I'm no longer but I would go to I would go to mass at like five o'clock. It would finish. It was like super rapid mass. It would finish at five thirty, and I'd go off to the cafeteria. I would have my meal. I would have my second meal or my my half next half meal. I would wait until about 6.30 or 7 when the track team would come in, and they all looked like I do now. And they were spelt, athletic. They had just run 10 miles or more. They were like totally had burned it all off. And they didn't have two or three helpings of things. And I felt right at home with them. And um, I had already had my food by the time they came in. So to actually see them doing it. But at the same time, I was jealous of them. I was completely of them, because they had the kind of body that I wanted, and they were able to put away that food, and it didn't even put an ounce on them, and so, and they were great guys as well, they were just really good-hearted people, and um, we would have a lot of fun, but I was like secretly envious of them, as well as also just honestly admiring them. Um, Later on, after uh, college, what I found was that I was constantly at the refrigerator, uh, when I first got abstinent, I like to tell the refrigerator story. And um, getting absent was really challenging for me at first. So if anyone's having trouble, know that it, it's not necessarily about being struck abstinent. I like to say that um, in 1988, for the first time, I was struck willing. And then the second time was June 1st, 1995. And so that was the second time in my life in which I was struck willing. I wasn't struck abstinent. I was struck willing to do something. So when I first got into program in '88, in, in um, I knew there were certain foods that I had problems with. They're just—I I knew, right? We know. <laughs> and the thing is, is like I, I love it when somebody new comes in and they say, "I just, I just, I don't know about this thing called absence." I don't what do I do about absence? I'm like, well, what do you have problems with? (laughs) Like, those are the, that's, we know, right? So I knew one of the things was carbonated beverages, like soda, Coke, root beer. I'd go through a six-pack of root beer in an afternoon. And uh, my parents were always amazed, like, where did all the Coke go? I was like, well, I don't know. (laughs) But um, what I would do was, uh, as I was starting to get absent, I would feel something. And I wouldn't recognize it right away. And next thing I you know, I'd be at the refrigerator with the, the, the door open, hand on the handle, hand reaching in for a piece of food. And I would, by the grace of God, or I don't know what, I would stop, and I'd be like, okay, wait, I've made a commitment to abstinence. I've made a commitment. What does that mean to me? That means that I, before I can be abstinent, for me, I need to commit to feel my feelings no matter what, period, because I recognized early on that I ate over my feelings. I ate to stuff them down. There was more stuff that I learned as I went on. There were, there were spiritual components to that, but I'm very sure just the dynamic of it was, if Greg had a feeling, Greg ate. <laughs> and it didn't matter what that feeling was. I could be, like, hot for somebody. I could be bored with something. I could be scared of something. I could be pissed at you, which was something that I even didn't register. Like, that, I was so fast into the food with that one because I didn't even know that feeling. So as time went on my first year, um, I would find myself at the fridge time and time again. It was at least the first couple months. But it was progressive. Again, another reason why I don't believe in being struck abstinent. I believe that because the disease is progressive, my recovery can be progressive as well. So this is an example of of the progress that I made early on. I would find myself at the fridge, door open, hand on the handle, um, not reaching for food but kind of staring in there longingly <laughs> you know? and I'd be like okay I must be feeling something what is it and my first very first sponsor taught me a very very important tool that I usually pass on to my sponsors and that is comfortable uncomfortable when it comes to feelings it can be that simple am I comfortable or am I uncomfortable and all that is because see I can get into like I don't know what I'm feeling well I can't figure it out because there are so many feelings like today I can really honestly say that I have a very rich emotional life and I say it's rich because it doesn't matter if I'm pissed off resentful fearful, celebratory, horny, grateful, whatever it is. It's a rich emotional life, you know. I didn't have that when I was in the food, so I'm grateful for a rich emotional life. But I was standing there in front of the fridge, and I could—I was noticing by my behavior that I was about to be compulsive. And by, by sitting in these rooms, people had taught me, your behavior is an indicator. Pay attention to that. And so there I was, and I was like, I'm about to be compulsive. Something must be going on. I didn't know what, so of course I would use the tool, comfortable, uncomfortable. Oh, I feel really uncomfortable right now. That was easy. That was like, it was so easy to do comfortable, uncomfortable, right? So if you need, if you need help learning your emotions, just stick with that. And then the cool thing about that was that it was really empowering for me. As soon as I said, "Wow, I'm feeling really uncomfortable." Like, who the hell cares what it was? I was being honest about my emotions, probably for one of the first times in my life, and suddenly it was like, oh, yeah, I'm being uncomfortable. I committed to feeling my feelings no matter what. Let me take a moment. God, please help me, whatever, serenity prayer, to figure out what this is. And when I would drill down on it, right, because I needed to start somewhere, when I would drill down on it, I would suddenly realize that 12 hours ago, somebody made uh, some sort of comment about the job I had done at the office, Interpreted or I whatever or, or and 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 that was quite often the case was that it was well over it was well over several hours prior that something had happened so I had this horrible lag time <laughs> I mean sometimes it was days it was like oh that person looked at me weird last week <laughs> you know I mean just it was you know and so another piece of the progress was next stage maybe a couple months. later. Or a month or two later, I would be at the fridge, hand on the door, not door open, thinking about the food inside, wondering what I had in there, right? And then I'd realize I'm feeling something. A month or two later, it was actually probably a period of a couple of weeks, I think. But the next thing was outside the fridge, in front of the fridge, not touching it, pacing back and forth, <laughs> in front of it, going, I know that thing's in there. Oh, I know they put that. You know, and that little devil and angel on your shoulder kind of thing, you know? And um, eventually, I got to the point where I'd be in some other room in the house, and I would think of the fridge, and I'd go, I must be. So for me, I tell that story because I love how it shows the prog- the progression of recovery, I, and I also tell that story because I think it inspires and it gives a lot of hope that you don't have to do it perfectly in the beginning. I sure as hell didn't. The very first thing I got absent from was was Coke and Pepsi and and root beer, and I wasn't really absent from anything else for five or six months after that. I. It was progressive, but then here's the next cool story. November 1988,
1: um, I realized that
0: after after a couple months in program and a little bit of a little bit of progress and a little bit of a little bit of spiritual connection and everything, I thought, well, I better do it. they're saying about getting a sponsor. i don't really want it. but you know, I finally became willing to get a sponsor. So I asked a guy, and he's like, "Oh, sure, I'd love to sponsor you. Here's my food plan." Because Back in the day, basically, you just your sponsor gave you a food plan. Right. You, you, there was. it was right at the time when Grace Sheet was phasing out and Grace Sheet was very strict and it was very specific and a lot of people had done it but also if people weren't doing it there was still quite this habit so like you, you get a sponsor and you start doing exactly what they're doing so this one guy said Here's my food plan. I don't need any sugar. I don't need any white flour. And I weigh and measure my food. And I said, fuck you. <laughs> In my head. <laughs> and then, no. I was like, no freaking way. And um, I walked away from that. And I was like, okay, I'll call you. <laughs> yeah, right. So I didn't call him. And a couple weeks later, I thought, there's that nagging thought. I should get a sponsor. So I heard somebody else speak, and they raised their hand. They said they were a sponsor. And I was like, oh, I'll ask him. So I asked him, he goes, I would love to talk about that. And I'm like, what's your food plan? And he goes, I don't need any sugar, I don't need white flour, and I way and measure my food. And I was like, not really for me. So I didn't call him. And then um, it was late November, 1988, and I thought, I really need a sponsor. And I listened to how it does on in the tools, and it says, find somebody who has what and in, 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 in the way that the way it's really written, I don't know if they've rewritten it, but they didn't say find a sponsor who has what you want. They said find someone who has what you want. So I realized, oh, just because someone's not raising their hand doesn't mean I can't have. And so I heard this guy speak, and he talked about how he worked the steps and how he wrote over them, and he sounded serene. He sounded like he had perspective around his problems. He, he expressed himself in a way that he seemed to be happy with himself. He had physical recovery. He was married. He had a good job. He seemed like, wow, this is, this is a lot of what I want. But he hadn't raised his hand. And I walked up to him later, and I said, are you sponsoring? I really need a sponsor. And he said, well, give me a call. So I called him, and we talked, and he said, here's my food plant. I don't need any sugar, I don't need any white flour, and I weigh and measure. And I said, so there's, there's a fine difference. I don't know what it is, but there's a fine difference between being willing and unwilling. And when I really am willing, then my recovery begins to happen. When I'm willing to feel my feelings no matter what, my recovery begins to happen. Even if I'm in the food, I, I, I believe first in being clean from the food and then working the program. Really helped me. He gave me an amazing first step, and I'll share this with you as well. So, first step, we were, admitted we were palsy over food and that our lives had become unmanageable. What does that look like? For me, he helped me by breaking it down into three lists. The first was All kinds of ice cream except one brand. By the time I was done with that list, I was able to see my patterns with my sponsor's help, and that's really the key for me. Is in the beginning, is being able to see our patterns, because then when I get up to step four, I've had a little practice looking at Greg's patterns in life. Because then at step four, I can start to take a look at the patterns of the way I think and the way I act, not just around food. You know, so for me, then the next step, step two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. I thought I did that step already, because I grew up Catholic, I was religious, I did a lot of activities, I was a good Catholic Christian boy, I went to church, I did my thing, and um, I was wrong about that. I did not, I, I believed in a power greater than myself, but I did not believe that that power could restore me to sanity, and I honestly didn't really necessarily think I was insane, I just was starting to get a grasp on the fact that I had a food problem. So for me, the beautiful thing about Step 2 is that um, a couple years down the line, I decided to not be Catholic anymore. And that really threw me into a bit of a loop. Um, but thanks to this program and a lot of other people's experience, I really that was the time at which I really embraced Step 3. It was about three years into being abstinent. And I embraced it because our literature, which had just come out at that time, and the AA literature was basically saying I don't care what you believe in, in that thing that's great. I don't even care if you have a concept. Just believe in something and make sure it's bigger than you and not you. You know, And that was, for me, it was amazing because step two enabled me to let go of the higher power I grew up with and embrace over the years several other higher powers, or at least other concepts. They were all the same higher power to me, but it was like I could only grok a certain, a certain concept at a time. So at that time... I excommunicated myself from the Catholic Church, and I basically prayed to an oak tree outside my window. And about six months later, I decided to move to Philadelphia. I I grew up in Rochester, New York, and I realized I can't take the oak tree with me. I'm going to need something else. (laughs) So that's when I realized, well, I said to myself, what when do I feel closest to anything that I could call God? And I realized that whenever I was indulging in creativity, whenever I was engaged in in creative process or doing something creative, I felt really close to something I could call God. So I made creativity my inner power. And it just blossomed from there. I ended up going and studying Buddhism for a few years. Um, and It's all progressed from there. I'm not currently religious in any way. I don't affiliate myself with anything except program and a particular dance practice that I do, which is also very spiritual for me. And that's the other thing. My whole ability to understand something greater than myself, my body is a power greater than myself. And that has come to me in the last like, seven or eight years in realizing one that I actually have a body <clears throat> so that I can pay attention to it more than just regarding what goes into it. <laughs> you know, and that I actually can use it. And I can use it in ways that I was never able to at 250 pounds and that I really am now at 190. I can do push-ups. Oh, my God. <laughs> I could never do push-ups before. I was, I was not only too scared of them, but I was I was I thought I was a wimp. I thought I was a weakling. I thought I was not strong at all. And now my body is now priming to that. It has more capacity than I even think it does, which is really amazing to me. So then let's move to step three. Like, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. As we understood it more yet? I don't think I necessarily struggled with this that much. I did struggle with the notion of letting something go that I was thinking about. That was really hard. What did it mean to let something go? And what I want to say about that is that, um, I was thinking this earlier, and let me see if I can say this right. Acceptance is not resignation, and surrender is not giving up. And for me, that's really important to draw a fine line between those two things. I gave up so many times with the food. I gave into the food prior to the program. I gave up on myself, I gave up on other people, and I gave up on life. And, and that's the thing to me as resignation. It's like, oh, like I said earlier, I've resigned myself to being fat for the rest of my life. Okay, so now I'm not fat anymore, and I haven't been for years. So was maybe Greg's thinking not too good back then? (laughs) You know, was like maybe the way I viewed things not quite right? So letting go of the way I was thinking about things kind of started with the willingness. And it wasn't giving up on uh, on something. Because, like, I'm the type of person that if something, back then, if something didn't work, I would either try harder or I would give up instead of try different or try to change my thinking around. You know? And when I came into programme there were still a lot of things that I was afraid of and I'm not afraid of those now. You know? I'm not afraid of women anymore. I was definitely afraid of women. Yeah, I was definitely afraid of women. They just made me panic to no end. <laughs> you know, it was yeah, it was crazy. I, I was afraid of being successful. I was afraid of having I was afraid of having a career. It was when I was almost 29 years old and I realized if I don't have a career, if I don't pick something, by the time I'm 30, I felt that I would never have a career. And I picked something, and it was the wrong something, and I switched and picked something else, and that worked for years. But it was like, that fear kept me out of a career till I was 29. And like 29, it's like you're starting to become a spiritual adult. You know, it's late. It's late to pick a career. But I did. I picked one, and it worked out. And now... Since then, like I've done things that I could have never imagined, because this program, through these steps, has afforded me a way to look at these fears and say, "Well, what's really going on here?" Like, I was afraid to make money. You know, when I moved to Philadelphia, I was making twenty-five thousand a year. Now that may sound like a lot to some people, but that then—I mean, it, it was a lot to me back then. But it wasn't really very much to live on. I was still barely scraping by. And I thought to myself, "Wow, if I could make like thirty like thousand, I mean that's not a big jump these days. Five is not a big jump. But that, at that time, in my mind, it was it was like the Grand Canyon or the size of a jump. And I got this job, and I, I made they gave me thirty five, and I thought, Oh my God." I can make 35000 maybe I can make fifty. you know? And eventually, within about two years' time, as I became more comfortable in my profession and in my own skills, and I obviously became, grew in my recovery and my self-confidence around who I was, my, my knowledge of who I was with the steps, I was able to make more of my money. I've been able to start businesses. I've been able to leave businesses. I've been able to move. I've been able to do all these things that originally I was too afraid of. So, to me... How does that relate to step three? That relates to step three in that I'm not pushing anymore. I do push sometimes. But I can tell the difference now, actually, on an emotional level. I know that if I want John to think a particular way about me, and I start acting a specific way, and I, and I, I can feel this, like, pushing. You know, it's, it's like a trying too hard kind of a thing. Whereas if, I'm, if I just kind of go, okay, God, I'm going to let you take care of this, I'll do whatever's in front of me, but I'll let you take care of the result, right? And for me, that, again, there's a difference between intention and control. My intention is to be the best person that I can be with the help of this program and my higher power, but I can't always control that. (laughs) I often can't control it at all, nor can I ever, ever, ever control a result, but I can certainly intend one. There is no problem with me having a goal or having an intention. When I came in... I wanted to be 10. There's nothing wrong with wanting that. And I actually, what I did, part of my step three, was to commit to being abstinent. I said, I'm just going to be abstinent, and I'm going to trust that my higher power and my body will figure out my weight for me. You know, And I'm grateful for that that happened, because otherwise, I would have tried to control it. And that's why eventually I let go of weighing and measuring. Step four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Um... My first step four was like a mini-novel. It was just not very rewarding. It was, I don't know, it was it was simply regurgitation to please the people that I was first... I mean, the first four-step with, you know. But then a couple, about two years later, um, it was about it was 1990, I was really feeling like I'm, I keep doing the same things. I keep thinking the same things. I keep... I'm tripping over the same stuff in my head. I keep exhibiting the same behaviors. I really want some freedom around this. And so I, I got some sort of 95-question thing from AA, and I just answered every single one of these questions. And I sat with this really compassionate, loving man that I knew at the time. He was not in OA, but I, I, I trusted him. I felt comfortable with him. And I sat with him and, and on the 4th of July. It was the 4th of July, I think it was, or 1989. And, um... I basically buried my soul to him, and I never before had told um, secrets. You know, things that had happened to me, things that I was embarrassed about or ashamed about or felt guilty about. I'd never told them as honestly as I told him. And this, to me, is the power—the power of the four-step. At the time that you know, I did it all these different ways, but eventually, I'm now more of a big book four-step person. You know, I love the four-column format, and I break it down and I say, who. Um, who, what, what, who, why, what, and my. So, who is it that I'm resentful or fearful of? Why am I resentful or fearful of them? What is it affecting, and then my part, you know? And to me, if I'm having, if I'm having like a weird experience in the middle of the day, and I can do who, why, what, and my, I can do that really fast. I can't do 95 questions really fast, you know. So I don't like, I like the book, book format, but the 95 questions really helped me kind of drill down and look at patterns. It looked at patterns of selfishness, anger, um, self-abuse, neglecting other people, um, a lot of patterns around fear. Like I said, my life was basically all about fear. So one of the cool things about, as I mentioned earlier, the four-step is seeing these patterns, right? Because now that they're on paper... There's something about writing something on paper for me that makes it concrete, and it is a hell of a lot harder for me to be in denial about it because I just wrote it down. And if I really honestly wrote it down, I can't kind of go, oh, that's not true, (laughs) you know, because I just wrote it down, (laughs) So unless I'm fooling myself. And then once I share with somebody in step five and get their objective feedback, You know? Then I can start to use six, seven, eight, and nine to change my patterns. And so my my lovely step five story is that this man listened to me for several hours, and he never flinched, and I thought it was great. And at one point, he stopped me, and I was talking on and on and on about being selfish. I'm selfish about this. I'm selfish. I'm selfish. I'm selfish. And he's like, okay, wait a minute. When were you first told you were selfish? Like, by who? And I was like, my parents. And he was like, how old were you? I was like, "Uh, nine or ten. Yeah, and he had kids, so he knew. I, 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 didn't, I didn't know. He's like, nine or ten year olds, that's, that's their world. And I'm like, so you're saying that I took on a judgment from my parents and made it my own belief about myself? And he, and he was like, absolutely. And suddenly I realized there was a huge difference between self care and self centeredness. And that I was I was always wanting to take care of myself, but calling it selfishness and thinking I was being self-centered. Because that was the message I was getting. How would I know any different? I had nobody to teach me otherwise until this man lovingly pointed out that there was a, a contrast there. There was a discrepancy, you know. As, as some people say, there was a bug in the code, you know, <laughs> and I need to reprogram my, my programming. So that for me is step five. And once, once I have all that out on paper with my higher power, telling it to another person, then I can use six and seven. And for me, six and seven are perspective steps. They're steps that say, all right, now you've done <laughs> Basically, you, you've just dumped everything that you could ever think of that you've ever felt, and you've shared it with another person, and you're probably kind of feeling like, I don't know about you, but I feel a little raw after I do that, and a little a little, little tentative. But the sixth step says, like, really now, take a look at these things. And for me, I don't necessarily have to, like, sit down again and, and pour over the pages. What happens for me is that if I do an inventory, on a particular issue, or even do a full fourth step. The six and seven steps just ha- start happening naturally. Why? How? It's because I go out in the world and I slight somebody, or I go out in the world and I, let's say I'm dealing with anger and I get pissed off, and all of a sudden it's right there in my life. Right? Why is why is this a spiritual practice? It's because I have to practice it every day. It's practical. It's right there in my practical, everyday face. (laughs) So when something comes up, then it's like I get to see, now that I've written it down, because I'm still a little disconnected from what I wrote down, uh, the awareness comes up, and I start seeing it every place in my life, right? And that, to me, is step six, because that accelerates my willingness to have that removed. And I have a great six and seven step. sorry, um, it was, uh, I was still in Rochester, New York at the time, and I was dealing with the defect of being late. And every single thing in my life I was late for. Every meeting, 15, 10, 20, 15 minutes late. And it was killing me. I'd walk in and I'd be like, oh my God, I felt so bad. And if I got to share, I'd say, I'm so sorry I'm late. I'm so sorry I'm late blah, 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 blah. And I'd be late for things. And I, I at the time, I also didn't even have a car at one point. And people would come and pick me up and they'd be waiting five or ten minutes for me. And of course, they were smart. They said, we'll pick you up at X, at, at X time, you know, knowing that I'd be like ten minutes late. So it would all work out. We'd get there. But all of a sudden, one day, I got to a meeting about 15 or 20 minutes late. I was seething. I was like so upset with myself. And all of a sudden, I realized that I was upset with myself. I'm like, why am I apologizing to the entire group when I'm the one hurting me? I'm not hurting the group. I mean, yeah, it's it's great if everybody's here when the meeting starts, you know, because then you have a container, you have that kind of group feeling, and it grows as the meeting goes on. But if somebody's late, like, whatever. And everybody else in the room, if I walk in late right now, you're not all going, like, oh, what a fuck, he's late. You're just going, oh, Greg's late. Oh, it's good to see him whatever, you know what I mean? But I'm the one walking in late, beating myself up, and I realized, why don't I just accept that I'm late? I am a tardy individual. That's just the way it is. You know? And as soon as I did that, I'd get there late, and I'd think, I'd start getting pissed off again. I'd be like, no. I mean, you're supposed to be accepting this. So I would accept it, and then I realized, I regret being late. Right? So I took it out of needing to apologize to everybody else, and starting to apologize to myself, Ooh, I regret being late, and that is how the six and seven steps starts working, showing me my pattern. Because then I actually had serenity around it. I was like, okay, I regret being late. I'm hurting myself by not making it to the meeting. I missed the prayer at the beginning. I missed the, when they read the steps and the traditions back east. We always did that, and um, and and I'd miss the first share or I'd miss the speaker or whatever. I regret it. But you know what? Half meeting is better than no meeting. So if I'm going to be late, I'm going to be late. Then the cool thing is, one day I was getting ready for my friends to pick me up at this time when I had no car. And um, I, was, I was sitting on the steps and the stairs inside the house and I was waiting. And suddenly I realized that I was waiting for them. And I wasn't rushing trying to brush my teeth and put my color on or tie my shoes. I was waiting. And I was like, oh, my God, it's been lifted. Like, I'm not late today. And really, all that matters is whether I was late that day. I was late again subsequent days, of course, because it's just the way it is, Um, sometimes, for me. But, um, you know, I grew up with with a compulsive dad around that. He had to leave the house half an hour before we really needed to. He had to. And I grew up with a sister who was compulsively late. So I was stuck in between these two modalities, and I just chose to go with my sister. (laughs) That (laughs) seemed the easier way to go. But, like, the, the point I'm trying to make is that I could not, I couldn't be willing to have this thing removed until I accepted that it was actually there. If I'm fighting and struggling against it, there is no removal. I'm sorry. I could pray until I'm blue in the face. I could go to the greatest mosques and temples in the world and ask for this to be removed. But if I'm fighting it, I'm not doing the third step. I am not giving it over to the care, to the care of a power greater than myself. So acceptance for me is so much a part of that, and really surrendering to the fact that I was late enabled me to begin to make changes. And that has always been the case for me. And so I don't really have enough time to really keep going with down the steps, but my personal opinion is that the first three steps, they basically form a foundation of principles that then are repeated four more times. Right? but on deeper and deeper levels. So it's like step 10, continue to take a personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Oh, look, repeated word. <laughs> admitted it, right? I admit something. This time it's not about food, because I did that when I got up this morning. I'm powerless over food, and my life's unmanageable. I get on my knees. I say, God, please help me stay absent in that day. I did it that day. I did it before I ate my dinner. I just exhibited um, whatever. Impatience. I was doing that earlier this morning. I was driving from one place to another, and I was being impatient. And I was so impatient that every single car that got in front of me was slow. And until I could actually accept that I was going to be late, (laughs) i that late again. (laughs) Until I could actually accept that maybe I was supposed to go slow behind these cars and relax into it, then everything was okay. I stopped being stressful, I stopped feeling like compulsive about the traffic. It was great. And I was late. And you know what? My friend was fine with it. She got actually had a break. She had a break where she could actually learn a little bit more about her cell phone. So it's like the thing is it's like as soon as I lock my mind on the thinking that something has to be a certain way, usually Greg's way. <laughs> as soon as I lock my mind on the thinking that I completely close it. To the opportunities to view other possibilities. There is no other possibility except my way. You know that old phrase, my way or the highway, and it's really quite true. So this program helps me at deeper and deeper levels. You know, when I, when I say step ten, considering take a personal inventory. There it was, spot check. I was I was being compulsive around the traffic. I was being impatient. What leads? What 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 happens after I'm impatient? I get pissed off. What happens when I get pissed off? I get resentful about the guy in front of me. And if I really, really latch onto that resentment, you know, then two days later I'm still thinking about that guy in front of me, and I'm not being present with what's going on in the moment. And the Lord only knows, but suddenly some strange piece of food that I wasn't intending goes in my mouth. Right? And that's the way it works for me. And so the eleventh step is connecting with that higher power. It's just further it's furthering my coming to believe. To 90s. well lives with the care of God as we understood Him. And then I see the third step prayer as it's written in the big book. And to me, that even if I do all that completely insincerely, <laughs> if I do that in the fastest rush that I've ever been in because I can't wait to eat breakfast or get out the door or I want to exercise or whatever my excuses, I have found that time over time, no matter how insincere I am in doing it, if I do it I am granted the gift of abstinence that day and that's just been proof because when I relapsed when I left the program in 94 I thought I could do it on my own and I stopped getting on my knees I stopped reading literature I stopped sponsoring I stopped having a sponsor I stopped going to meetings I stopped doing everything except meditating and thank God because that was the one tether that kept me to any sense of sanity and next thing I know I was having cookies every Friday I was exhibiting binge eating over the weekend, which I had never exhibited, like massive quantities for me. Not not as big as some other people, but massive for me. And I was obsessing about my weight every single week for a year and I was not in meetings. And as soon as I started getting on my knees again and doing these simple little this little technique, I was granted the gift of abstinence. And I was I guess I was granted the gift of willingness. So the other things I do is I read I read some literature I want to say is I'll just close with this phrase that I heard and I haven't said this in a long time and I heard this in